I invite you to turn into Luke chapter 1 as we continue our study of Luke's gospel this Lord's Day. Uh, we come to verse 39 today. If you've been with us in our study of Luke's gospel so far, you know that uh, there is a, a break between our Old Testament and our New Testament. And during that break, we have about 400 years of silence where God uh, did not speak through a prophet. He did not speak to his people but that silence was broken in the first chapter of Luke, where we see God send the angel Gabriel to Zechariah the priest uh, to tell him that his uh, old and barren wife would indeed have a child. We saw then, not long after that, that same angel Gabriel goes to a young virgin girl named Mary to tell her uh, that she would have a child in her womb, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and that she too would have a child, and that her relative, her cousin Elizabeth, was pregnant in her old age. And so uh, we pick up now in uh, chapter 1 where Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, her relative, to go rejoice with her about this good news that both have received. And we see how they both respond in thanksgiving. And so we're going to look now at Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 39 through 55. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I invite you to stand as I read this passage for us. This is what the Word of God says. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. You would pray with me. Father, as we see now this response to the Messiah, this response to Jesus from Mary, from Elizabeth, and even from John and Elizabeth's womb, I pray, God, that we would consider what our response is to Christ today, that we would not just hear your word, but, Lord, that we would respond to your word. And I pray, Lord, that that response would be one of faith and repentance. 
I pray, God, as we prepare to come to your table in response to your word today, that you might help us, as your word commands, to examine ourselves and to truly consider if we indeed are trusting in Christ today and how we are responding to Christ today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, days were dark and somewhat miserable for a a middle-aged composer named George. He had uh, experienced great success at a young age, but now he was at a point in his life where he had suffered from a stroke, where he had become destitute, where he was in danger of being sent to a debtor's prison. And so one night in 1741, in a state of depression, he went around and wandered the streets wondering if there's any way he might find hope in this life. He returned back to his apartment to find that a, a friend had dropped off something for him. It was a, an envelope. And so George opened up that envelope and found that there were a, a series of Bible verses written down in that envelope. He then began to look up those verses and found that they all related to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of Jesus. And so there George read those verses, he he threw them to the side, and he crawled back into his bed in his state of depression. But he couldn't sleep. In fact, he, he laid there, still in his bed, wide awake and And the verses that he had read through just continued to go through his mind. Passages like Isaiah 9 verse 2, where God says, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And it is the light of the Messiah that consumed George's mind. He he got up out of his bed, he went to his piano, and for the next 24 days, he composed music about the Messiah. He barely stopped to eat. He barely stopped to sleep. He refused to see anyone. He just continued to compose. Finally, a friend managed to get inside his apartment where he found George surrounded by sheets of music everywhere. Teams were, tears were streaming down his face as he said to his friend, I do believe that I have seen the greatness of God. Not long after that, George Handel finished composing his Messiah, a piece that now nearly 300 years later continues to be one of the greatest compositions of all time. It was and is the response of a man to the message of the coming of Christ. It is a song of rejoicing and praising for what God has done. But it wasn't the first song written about the coming of the Messiah. In fact, long before that, Luke records Mary's song. Luke records Elizabeth's response. And Luke even records the response of the child in Elizabeth's womb to the coming of Jesus. And so today, we're going to walk through these responses. And as we do, I want us to consider our response, how it is that, that we have and we are responding to the good news of Jesus, to the good news of the gospel, as we prepare for a response of coming to the Lord's table together. And so, we're going to begin there with the the first, excuse me, response you see in your outline. I'm sorry, Nick, can you find me a bottle of water? I forgot to bring one with me this morning. 
Uh, the first response we see is this. It's John's response to Jesus, and his response is joy. Now notice again what we see there in verse 39. We read that in those days, uh, Luke sets the stage for us here by telling us when this visit between Mary and Elizabeth took place. Now, it had been revealed by Gabriel in verse 36 that Elizabeth at this point was in her sixth month of pregnancy. And we also know at this point that Mary is newly pregnant with Jesus, this child that has been conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit. Chances are that it was right after she received this message from Gabriel that she began to travel to see her relative Elizabeth. Now, this traveling, this journey would have taken her several days, but the scripture says she went with haste. The indication is as soon as she received that message, she quickly wanted to go see her relative Elizabeth. So at this point, Mary is likely only about a week, maybe two weeks pregnant with Jesus. And again, Elizabeth is six months into her pregnancy with John. Thank you. And so here we have these two women. But it is important that we recognize, friends, that this visit isn't just between two women. Now, this visit is between four people. Because we have, within the womb of Mary the person, Jesus, and we have within the womb of Elizabeth, the person, John. And the very first response that is recorded by Dr. Luke in his passage today is the response of John, still in the womb of his mother, Mary. Notice again what we see in verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And then we read in verse 44, Elizabeth herself takes note and says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And so not only did this happen as the first response, we see Elizabeth now sharing that this was the first response, and it was a response of joy. And you notice the phrase there that John uh, that is used to describe John's response, this leaping for joy, it means to be extremely joyful and to rejoice greatly, to have extreme gladness. And so it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit that, that filled Elizabeth, the Scripture says, and that Spirit that filled her son, John, in her womb, this Spirit's filling empowers John to recognize that this Weak or two conceived child in the womb of Mary is indeed the Messiah. What we see here is that John in the womb is already rejoicing that the Messiah has come. He's already preparing the way for the Lord, which was God's call in his life. And one of the early church fathers said it this way Not yet born, John already prophesies. And so we see John here in the womb already pointing the way to the Savior. Some say that John was the only child that ever turned his mother's womb into a pulpit. And that's what we see him doing here in Luke chapter 1, this response of joy. But there's another response to Jesus' visit, and we see that here in Elizabeth, which brings us to that second point. Elizabeth's response to Jesus is one of thanksgiving. I notice 
verse 40, we read that Mary entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, we don't have the details of that greeting. We don't know all that took place in that conversation, but chances are that greeting included more than a, than a hello, more than a how are you. Uh, chances are in this greeting that they probably shared about the messages that came from Gabriel, the, the message to Zechariah that while it left him mute because of his unbelief, he would have been able to indicate somehow to his wife this message. The scripture says that he made signs in order to indicate what had happened. And so Elizabeth would have understood what this message was from Gabriel. Of course, Mary would have received that message from Gabriel. And so you can imagine what their conversation was like as they talked about this good news that had come from God, these centuries of silence that had been broken, the long-awaited king, the Messiah, who is now in Mary's womb. And perhaps in sharing those messages, they even talked about the, the God-ordained relationship that their, their sons would have with one another. How John indeed was called to prepare the way for the Lord, and Mary's child Jesus indeed was the Lord. And notice how we see Elizabeth respond here. Her response is one of thanksgiving. Now, the first way we see that is that she's thankful for the coming Messiah. Verse 42 reads, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And the ESV study Bible includes this very helpful note. We read there that the reason for Mary's blessedness is located in the second, blessed is, because the blessedness of the child she would bear. And so again, there's some confusion sometimes in the text when we read about Mary and what it is about Mary that makes her blessed. What's blessed about her here is the child within her womb. What's blessed here is the great gift God has given her, the fruit of her womb. That's how Elizabeth responds to the Messiah. She said, blessed is the, the fruit of Mary's womb. Now this phrase, the fruit of the womb, it's a reference to children in the scripture. And for example, we see Solomon in Psalm 127 declare, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And so we, we should note here that at this point, even though that this child in Mary's womb is probably a, a week or two into development, that this is a fertilized egg, that even at this point, it's very clear in the scripture that this is a person, this is a, a child. In fact, I'm sure many of you have seen these, these graphics that, that show the, the progression of a child in the womb from the point of fertilization all the way up to the point right before birth. And so you can see a child developing in the mother's womb at a few weeks, a few months. It's amazing the day and age we live in that we can look and we can see these things. And so if you, you go and look at one of those charts, one of those graphics, you'll notice that there's not a picture really at a, a few weeks old, at least not one that's not very microscopic, because at this point in development, that this fertilized egg, this child is about a tenth of a millimeter in size. Now, you probably don't have a ruler with you, but a tenth of a millimeter, that's barely recognizable to the human eye. And so again, consider the majesty of what we see here. 
where we see John six months developed in the womb. Now you look at a graphic of a six-month-old child in the womb, and you can see all types of features, all types of characteristics. And we have John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizing that that which is not even discernible by the human eye, this is a child, this is a human being, but not just any human being. This is truly God and truly man in the womb of Mary. Now, I I labor this point for this reason. We, We live in a culture, and we live in a world today where there seems to be this debate over what point this fertilized egg becomes a human being, at at what point this child in the womb actually becomes alive. There seems to be confusion in our world about this. Sadly, there's confusion at times in the church about this. But friends, understand, there's no confusion in God's word about this. There's no debate in the word of God. It's very clear in Luke chapter 1 that this tenth of a millimeter fertilized egg in the womb of Mary is a person, is a man. It is the man, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. And Luke here, Dr. Luke, is making sure we understand that John in the womb is praising God, that John in the womb is thanking God, that that Elizabeth is praising and thanking God. And they're not thanking and praising God because one day this will become a man. One day this will become a human. One day this will become the Messiah. They are thanking and praising God because this indeed is the Messiah. Mary's response is one of thanksgiving. We see also that she's thankful here for Mary's visit. Again, we pick up in verse 43. And she says, and And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. But we see here that Elizabeth is humble and that she is thankful for Mary's visit with her. Now, you may remember from our earlier passage where we read about Gabriel's message to uh, Zechariah about what would happen, that there's an indication in that passage that Elizabeth, after receiving this good news, that that she went into hiding for five months. She went into isolation. Now, we really don't know from the scripture why this is. We just know that this is. And so it's interesting to me that that after five months of, of being kind of kept away and in hiding as this child was growing in her womb, that then when the sixth month comes, that's where we pick up today. And so after these five months in isolation, The indication here is that perhaps the the very first visit she has outside of her interaction with her husband is this visit from Mary. And she's very thankful for this visit as she is thankful for what God indeed has done and will do. And so Mary doesn't just stop by to exchange a few words about the angelic message she received. The scripture tells us in verse 56 that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months. Now you can do the math there. Uh, Elizabeth was six months pregnant and when Mary visits her. She stays with her about three months. And so there's a strong indication here that that, that Mary may have stayed up until the point of or, or even a little bit after the point that John is born. And Elizabeth is so thankful for this fellowship with her relative as they would rejoice together at the message from God that they had each received. And along with that, we see that Elizabeth is also thankful 
for Mary's faith and her belief. Notice verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And I think this is especially significant when you consider that the contrast between Zachariah's response to Gabriel and Mary's response to Gabriel. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it seems that, that Elizabeth herself noted this. You'll remember that when Zachariah received that message from Gabriel, from the Lord, that he didn't believe. Uh, he doubted. He didn't have faith. And so uh, we see that specifically noted by Gabriel, who says that because of his unbelief, he wouldn't be able to speak until God had brought the fulfillment of all these things. So, so notice there, Gabriel doesn't say to him, well, because of your lack of faith, your lack of belief, God's not going to do what he said he was going to do, or God's going to curse you in some way. He simply says to Zechariah, you're not going to be able to speak until this comes to fruition. You're not going to be able to pass on your doubts and your lack of belief to others. You're going to see the power of God at work. So you just be still and be quiet and, and watch what God's going to do. But that's not how Gabriel responds to Mary because that's not how Mary responded to the message she received. She believed. She had faith. She trusted God. And Elizabeth here seems to, to note this difference as she points out that Mary is blessed because she believed that word from the Lord. Elizabeth herself, the scripture indicates, believed this message from the Lord. And so the picture you have here, and you can kind of imagine the context within marriage, is you have the wife, Elizabeth, who, who believed and was right to believe, and you have the husband, Zachariah, uh, who did not believe and was wrong to not believe. Now, for those of you who are married in this room, perhaps you've had that experience where one of you was right and one of you was wrong. <laughs> in our house, we have this its very little silly thing that Sandy and I will do at times, when we find one is right and one is wrong, we, we actually will just in a silly way sing. Uh, I was right, you were wrong, I'm going to sing it all day long. And, and that's the song we sing in our house. But here, Elizabeth, she could sing that song, and Zachariah couldn't say a word. <laughs> because he had been wrong, he hadn't believed. And yet Mary, the, the young virgin Mary, she believed. Now, I mean, consider again the, the weight of this. I mean, Zachariah was told, God's going to do something in your life that he has done before. Zechariah was a priest of God. Zechariah would know the history of God's people. Zechariah would know how throughout biblical history, God had taken women, older women, barren women, and had given them a child. That there was a history of God working this way. And so what Gabriel says to Zechariah is, God's going to do in your life what he's done in the lives of others before. You just need to trust him and believe him. He didn't believe. But Gabriel comes to Mary, that this young girl, a virgin, betrothed to Joseph, and he says to her, God's going to do something he's never done before in the history of time. You have no reference. You have no situation you can look back on and say, oh yeah, God did this among my ancestors Hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, I can trust him to do this. No, he's going to do something unique. He's never moved in such a way, and yet Mary believes. <laughs> Again, friends, it's a reminder to us our need to trust God, to believe God. Our God is the God who does impossible things because nothing is impossible for God. And we see Elizabeth noting this. We see Elizabeth thankful for this. She, she is thankful for Jesus. 
And she's thankful for Mary's belief. But we see here a third response, and that's the response of Mary. Point three, Mary's response to Jesus, it's one of praise. And so like George Handel, who, who responded to the scripture and to these passages about the coming of Jesus with a song and, and song, we see here Mary responding with this song of praise. And among the many things here, I just want us to note briefly how she praised God for his saving work, for his strength, and for his sovereignty. First, we see her praising God for his saving work. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And note here, Mary is praising God because he is the God of salvation. And, and there's a personal praise here. She, she is praising God because he is her Savior. Mary is, is praising God because Mary needs to be saved by God. Like every man, woman, and child born before her and every man, woman, and child born after her. We inherit the sin nature of our father Adam, that the scripture says clearly of us that there is none righteous, no, not one, no one does good, not even one, Romans 3. And we also see in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Mary understood that, that she inherited this sin nature from Adam, just like we do, that she was a, a sinner in need of a Savior. And now this news has come to her that the long-awaited Messiah has come, and he is the one who would bring salvation. He said to Mary that you will bear a son, and his name shall be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Mary not only understood her need for this, she understood the world's need for this, and she is praising God for this saving work he was offering through this child in her womb, truly God and truly man, Jesus Christ, who would die for her sins and die for our sins. She understood that salvation would come from the Lord, and she praised God for this. We also see her, her praising God for his strength. Verse 51 God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. She understood that God in his strength is a God who, who humbles the proud and who exalts the humble. And we see this even in the way that, that he brings about the Messiah's birth. In fact, Martin Luther once observed it this way, that God might well have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas's daughter, who was fair and rich and clad in gold-embroidered clothing and attended by a group of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a lowly town. We talked last week about how Nazareth, it was an, an insignificant place, a place not even mentioned in Old Testament history. It was a place of low reputation. Can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet we see God at work here and, and Mary praising God for this work and that he is, he is a God of strength who, who exalts the humble and who humbles the proud. 
Now here he is echoing the words here of Gabriel who declared that nothing will be impossible with God, that the God of all strength is the God who scatters the proud and exalts the humble. But not just the God of all strength, she also praises God for his sovereignty. And she praises God for the fulfillment of his covenant promise that he made to Abraham and Genesis 12, where he told Abraham, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Mary notes how the Lord has remembered that promise, as the Lord remembers all of his promises, and now he is fulfilling it. And you just consider that part of Mary's praise here, and consider how much time has passed between the time that God made that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, and the fulfillment of that promise now that we read about in Luke chapter 1. I mean, based on what we know from biblical history, it's about 2,000 years between this promise and this fulfillment. 2,000 years. Just consider that for a moment. I mean, maybe you've caught yourself in reminiscing and thinking about things that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago. 40 or 50 years ago. Maybe you've lived long enough to think back to to half a century and you think about how, how long ago that was. Mary here is praising God for the fulfillment of a promise that he had made 2,000 years before. And notice in her praise, Mary doesn't say anything about God taking so long. And she doesn't complain about the Lord's timing. And again, for those of you who know Scripture, we know that this promise didn't just first come in Genesis 12, that this promise goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And so, literally, this promise has been around for thousands and thousands of years. And now it's being fulfilled. And Mary isn't complaining about the timing. She's simply praising God for being a God who keeps His Word all of the time. Friends, that, again, is significant for us because we we get hung up on timing quite a bit, don't we? God, why haven't you done this yet? God, would you you just go ahead and... We seem to picture God as if He's there to do our bidding in our timing, and yet, friends, the Scripture teaches that we are here to do God's bidding in His timing. He invites us in. And so we see here that that Mary not only understands this, she is praising God for this. Her response to Jesus is one of praise. Elizabeth's response to Jesus is one of thanksgiving. John's response is one of joy and rejoicing. The question for us is this. And I put it there in your notes. What is your response to Jesus today? Now, it's not just a question from Luke chapter 1. That's a question from every page of Scripture. (laughs) That's a question for us each and every day of our life. How will we respond to Jesus? We tend to think of that in terms of a a one-time thing, of of how did we respond to Jesus, of how did we respond to the gospel. We, We seem to put our finger at this point in our lives where, oh yeah, that, that's when I walked the aisle. That's when I prayed the prayer. That's when I was baptized. That's when I became a member of such and such church. And sometimes we reminisce 
about that, but we forget that this is a question we, we shouldn't just ask then. That's a question we should ask now. That's a question we should ask each and every day of our lives. How will we respond today to Jesus? Is he Lord of our lives today? Are we repenting of sin today? Are, are we rejoicing in Christ today? Are, are we thankful to God today? Are we praising God today for Jesus Christ who has come and who the scripture clearly teaches us will indeed come again? Are we thankful? Are we rejoicing? Are we praising? And that's especially something I want us to consider as we prepare now to come to the Lord's table together. Because we read in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight 28 this in reference to the Lord's table. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. That this call from the scripture of examination is that, that we are not to come to the table in an unrepentant state. That we're not to come to the table while living in and the pursuit of sin and, and unrepentant of that sin, we're not to come to the table in that way because if we do, we're not coming to the table with a proper understanding of the gospel. Now, what the scripture is teaching us there is not that in order to receive the bread and the cup, we need to be in some state of perfection where, where we have confessed every known sin we ever have uh, committed and, and every one that we ever will commit. No, the, the, the context there is this. We are to come to the table, not in a state of perfection, but, but as ones who are trusting in a perfect Savior. That, that we are responding to Jesus by fully trusting in Him. We are responding to Him by confessing Him as Lord. And, and as such, that we are responding to Jesus in a way where we are repentant, where we're becoming less like ourselves and, and more like Jesus in our day-to-day -day lives. Again, not that we've become perfect, but we are trusting in one who is perfect. And because of the perfection of Jesus, truly God and truly man, he's the only one that can die in our place. And when we come to the table, this is what we are to remember. We come to the table remembering the gospel. We come to the table remembering the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for your sin and mine. We come to the table rejoicing in this truth that reminds us of this great exchange that takes place in the gospel. Where we come to Jesus with our sin. And Jesus has gone to the cross. He has died for that sin. And, and as we come to him in repentance, we then are covered by his righteousness. He takes on the death that we deserve and we receive His righteousness that we don't deserve. We come to the table and we rejoice over this great truth. Because it is a truth that gives us hope. So friends, if you've never responded to Jesus through faith and repentance, if you've yet to experience what we're called to in Romans chapter 10, that we are called to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead. If you've yet to do that, then we would ask in this time, that you pray, that you ask for God to mercifully empower you with the Holy Spirit to see your sin and repent of it. And that you observe 
is those of us who have confessed Christ and do believe that Jesus died and was raised again. As we come to the table together, again, not as perfect people, but as those who have been washed by the blood of a perfect Savior. And so we're going to respond now to God's Word. We're going to respond to the message of the Gospel in Luke chapter 1 by coming to the table together. So I want to invite our deacons, if they would, to come forward as we prepare to distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper and as we prepare to receive these together.